0: Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to Newcomers. Glad you're here. Um, we met Jessica, I guess a couple of months ago, when we toured a treatment program up in Alpharetta, and we just fell in love with her spirit. I mean, the love of the Lord just oozes through her. And we got to talk to her after we had the tour, and we just found out so much about her, and she told us about her husband, Patrick. So they're really here to share a personal testimony they're both professional people, but they're really here to tell you their journey. So, uh, ladies first. Jessica will speak first. Um, not yet. Okay. I'm just going to do a little intro. Um, she's been sober since July 4, 2017. She grew up with a functional alcoholic mom and a marine dad. She was sexually abused by a family member and diagnosed with bulimia and addiction while playing college volleyball. Uh, functioning on the outside, but became suicidal until honest about her trauma with her family. Now she oversees a trauma and recovery program in Alpharetta, Georgia, called Emerge. Patrick, his sobriety date is November 5, 2016. He grew up around here, went to Wheeler High School, Uh, grew up knowing God, but strayed and grappled with a family who suffered through suicide, addiction, and several transitions. He got sober after failing attempts at drug court, never made it in, Uh, While incarcerated, he attributes his success to finding God in prison and working the steps after leaving. He owns and operates now a sober living facility called Acceptance in Roswell. So let me pray, and then, Jessica, you want to come first? Okay. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this beautiful couple and their beautiful little son, Ellis, to uh, come out tonight and to just pour out their hearts and be crystal clear and transparent about their, their journey, Father. We just pray that you will speak through them in a mighty way, and they will just be beacons of light for us that are here, offering all of us words of hope and encouragement. We just pray that you continue to bless this family and their recovery. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Okay. was okay. a therapist. I like to sit, so this works out really good. And I wanted to go first so I can sit back and enjoy my husband's story and not get anxious, you know? Um, it's good to be here with you guys, and I just—it's incredible that that you're here. And I just want you to know, I'm praying for your kids with you. Um, it's incredible how much you love them, and it's evident. So my name's Jess, and I'm a recovering alcoholic and a person in recovery from an eating disorder. Um, as John said, I, I was raised here in Georgia, in McDonough. If you guys are familiar with South Atlanta. Um, I was born, I'm a single, I'm a single, I'm an only child. Uh, My mom is this like beautiful, very hardworking woman who just happens to have crippling alcoholism. You know, she's the type that's able to succeed. She's been like business woman of the year (coughs) in our county. And so on the outside, everything looks great, right? But, you know, my, my memories of my mom growing up are all like, okay, five o'clock every day, that's when we open our first bottle of wine, that's when we're on the couch. Um, so that was really uh, integral in my development, right? Like that's how I saw success. Um, my dad worked two jobs, very hardworking man. I was very much a daddy's girl, um, but he had some anger issues when I was growing up. Like they would very much fight Um Later, my dad's brother, my uncle, passed away when I was about five years old. He also was an alcoholic, so he, he died in a car accident. And at that point, my dad felt a call to go to seminary, and he actually became a minister. So that's when this like extreme volatility between my parents stopped. I don't think that they have the um, type of marriage that that I want today because my mom is still an alcoholic and you know my dad struggles with that. But it was it was really God's provision even through the the loss of my uncle, how my dad leaned in. Um, So when I was six years old, I distinctly remember asking Jesus into my heart. Like I'm a Christian. That's that's a big piece of who I am, and I just had this joy. Like I literally just remember running out into the yard, telling my dad about it. And and that's such an important part of my story because I look back and that's provision. Like that that presence of the Holy Spirit would carry me through some things that I had no idea were coming. Um, My dad is from Louisiana, Springfield. It's Livingston Parish, kind of close to New Orleans. And my dad is actually a quarter Chickasaw Indian. So they have this huge patch of land in Louisiana, and I used to go spend every summer there. And when I was little, that was magical. You know, I got to meet all my family. It was this big, huge, like 20-person tribe family, um, and I just had the best time. But something changed forever when I was 12. Um, my, my paternal grandmother, I was, I am still close with her, but we were very close at the time she had remarried and that man, he'd been in my life since I was born. I thought of him as my other grandpa, right? And he started sexually abusing me. And at that point I knew like it went on for seven years. Um, but at 12, I, I knew that like something had shifted Something had changed, and I couldn't articulate what that was. But just a few days later, that's when my eating disorder manifested. I had no idea they were tied, but I just knew that was the only way that I could cope with what I was feeling. I didn't feel comfortable telling my parents because even though my dad had found God and like changed his life, there still wasn't stability in my home, right? And I knew in my heart of hearts then my dad would probably kill his stepdad if he were to find this out. Like, that's the type of love my dad has for me. So I just, I kept it. I kept it. And that repression of secrets, you know, in in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is one of the reasons I'm here today, we say secrets keep you sick. And that was sure true with my story. So as I go through high school, um, you know, the bulimia is still going on, but... You know, nobody knew. So that was great. They just thought, wow, Jessica's gotten really skinny. Um, When I was 15 years old, I I found volleyball. And that, again, a provision from God. I just loved it. And I think that really helped me from going too far into an addiction at that point. But I tasted alcohol for the first time. And guys, when I drank for the first time, it's, it's like I could breathe, to be honest with you because I had all this anxiety that, like, lived in me all the time, anytime. um, And as you can tell, I'm kind of tall, right? Mm -hmm. So I stuck out like a sore thumb at my South Atlanta school, Um, had insecurities in general from that. But then on top of it was all the stuff no one knew about. So the first time I drank, I was like, wow, that was that was everything. Um, And from that point on, I always drank to get that initial relief, that wave of relief. I've never known how to stop drinking. Once I start, it's, it's until I black out or pass out. And so that continued, but by the miracle of being six feet tall, I was able to get a volleyball scholarship. And my grades weren't very good either, guys, because I would skip school, um, but I always made it on volleyball days because I wanted to play the games. So I go off to college and things got even worse because then it was like, I was away from the structure that I'd known. I was away from like the support group that I'd had, even though my friends didn't know what had happened to me, you know, it it was just comforting in a way. So then at college, I started having these really bad panic attacks and I went to a doctor and they prescribed me Xanax. And if you guys aren't aware, like benzodiazepines, very addictive. And I was like, these are great. These are like candy. They prescribed me two milligrams a day. And I was like, I think it'll be better if I take four milligrams a day, you know? So about that time, I started playing my own doctor. And then I realized marijuana is also a wonderful thing that helps me, like if I, it's not appropriate to drink before class, all the time so I can just smoke and take these pills and all the while my eating disorder was still rampant so I had what's called bulimia nervosa today um, I weigh about 169 pounds I don't know that because I keep a scale in my house we just went on vacation last month and they they weighed us before parasailing so Um, but when when I had to enter treatment I weighed around 114 And at that time, I thought I was huge. The body dysmorphia was rampant. Um, I had had my first seizure because I would take all of my prescription in the first two weeks. And with benzodiazepines and the dehydration that comes from bulimia, it just wasn't good. Thankfully, it was in the athletic gym. um, And so it was really evident to my coach. And the requirement was hey, if you want to keep your scholarship, you've got to go to treatment. You've got to go to treatment. And they actually helped my parents pay for my treatment because it was very expensive. I had to go to an all-ladies program <laughs> at the Medical College of Georgia that was dual diagnosis. Um, so treatment, treatment helped. And at this time, like, my dad was so, so broken about it. Um, again, he had no idea what brought this on. And I just remember my dad would always be like, Why, baby? Like, why? Why are you doing this to yourself? And I just was never able to tell him because I felt like he'd been through enough with his brother dying. I felt like him and my mom were struggling. And I just, you know, to be to be honest, it's just the lies that my addiction told me, right. So I go through treatment and I did get better. I got better. Like I decided, okay, no more benzos. Seizures suck. Um, and I need to like chill out on the eating disorder. Like that's where my head was. They made me go to a few N.A. meetings, which is Narcotics Anonymous, and I just remember these were in Augusta, Georgia, right? And me, this little 20-year-old girl, like from a pretty, you know, middle, upper-class family, and I was like, I don't, I don't belong here. This stuff's not for me, you know? Um, and so I was like, but I won't do the pills anymore. That's fine but I'm gonna keep the weed and the alcohol. So I made it through the rest of undergraduate and I would gotten well enough in treatment to not pass out anymore, you know? And my therapist had made enough of an impression on me to understand that like, okay, this is why you were doing that, right? Like your sexual abuse is what manifested your bulimia. And yes, you do have a family history of addiction, so you probably should stay away from alcohol. And I was like, that was really cool. Maybe with this knowledge, I can drink successfully. And you know what? I think that I'm gonna go to grad school for therapy. So my sweet little broken self got into a graduate program for therapy. And you know, there's something with eating disorders. I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but we tend to have some perfectionistic tendencies. So even though, you know, I was still very unwell, I did really good in grad school. I did real good. Um, And at the conclusion of it, they even asked me to be a professor. Um, And what's ironic is, is all during this time my drinking had gotten worse and worse. I would drive around with a bottle in my car every day, either whiskey or red wine. If I needed my teeth to not look like I'd been drinking, It was whiskey and then a little gum after, right? Um, And the class that they thought I was best at teaching was addictionology. (laughs) The irony, right? So at this time, I'm like functioning. I, oh, goodness, my relationships were horrible. Like I could not date a healthy human. I could not date a healthy man. Um, And I couldn't say no either. And what I mean by that is, I, had, I got engaged while I was in grad school. I knew he wasn't the guy for me. My dad even said no when he asked for my hand in marriage. Um, but I just didn't care. I was drunk every day and I thought like, well, this is what you have to do next. Because what was missing for me was this sense of like, value and worth in who I was, right? So I was like, well, I gotta get married. Um, thankfully, I broke off that engagement my parents did lose a lot of money on that. They've spent a lot of money on me through the years. Um, but from that place, I ended up living with my very best friend. We're, we're close again today, but my addiction absolutely ravaged our friendship. Um, she ended up not wanting me to live with her anymore. Um, and I, I ended up buying a place in Atlanta. Uh, when I was about 26 or 27, because I got sober at 28. Um, and I bought the place specifically because I could walk to the bar. And I was like, you know, no more of this, like, driving while super drunk business, waking up and not knowing where I am. Like, I can just, I can just walk. So then in October of 2016, um, I forgot to tell you guys about my mom's side of the family. I have, uh, my mom's an only child, and I was very close with my maternal grandparents. Talk about God's provisions, right? Like I had this one grandfather who stole my innocence, like just point blank, really, really shaped me in, in not a good way for a long time. But then on the other side, I had this man who just was the safest, most loving, incredible grandpa you could have. His name was Ellis, and that's my son's name. Um, but in October 2016, he passed away. And that was the beginning of the end of my drinking career because from that point, it spiraled. It spiraled. I remember that took me to my knees because I was like, what now? By this point, my parents had moved to a different state. They live in Orange Beach, Alabama. And, you know, in my act of alcoholism, I was a chronic victim. Like, I thought everything was against me, about me, even my dad had left me, right? Like he's he's gone, he's in a different state. And now now my pops died. So I had all this anger at God. I was working part time as a therapist, which those amends were not fun to make, mind you, <laughs> by the way, guys. I had to make amends to my boss. I was a junior therapist at the time. I'm grateful to have a license today. Um but let's see where oh I was coaching teenage volleyball like that was my biggest job at the time junior olympians very very incredible teenage girls but that was the the highlight of my life and when I wasn't coaching I was drinking as soon as I left practice every day I'm drinking on my drive home and so to be frank I got to a place where I was suicidal I just didn't want to go on anymore because I felt like you know nobody knows what I've been through I can't tell them I'm so broken like I just felt so broken that there's no way that that God can fix me I knew God was good but I didn't know he could be good to me and I just had this hopelessness the only thing that stopped me from completing a suicide attempt was was knowing my Nana that was my pop's wife um, and those teenage girls I coached so by this time I was working as a part-time therapist and the woman that's my grand sponsor today, she she's also of course in recovery and she ended up smelling alcohol on my clothes. And she knew I'd been to treatment before. I, I really amped up the eating disorder. I was like, you know, it was more for an eating disorder thing. I liked pills at the time, but it was more for a bulimia. And she was like, maybe you should hit a meeting with me. Just maybe. And so on July 3rd, 2017, I'd been to like a few meetings with her, and I was like, this hits very close to home. I did not think I was an alcoholic. I did not think, you know, because my mom, I didn't want to be like her. But after hearing and really listening in those meetings, I was like, they're talking about me. So, of course, I had to, you know, do a little more research. So on July 3rd, 2017, I absolutely just went out the park with it, right? Right. And I woke up on July 4th feeling like somebody was hitting the inside of my head with a baseball bat. I was so hungover. And I was also, that, that hopelessness, that passive suicidal ideation, that hadn't passed either. And so I reached out to someone in the program and I said, look, like I drank again, what do I do? And the advice was do the next right thing. And at that point I just surrendered. I just surrendered because I knew that that I had to give the life thing a chance. It wasn't yet for myself. I didn't have the self-esteem to know that, like, it could really get better. But I just wanted to give it a try. You're, you're good. Um, so from, from that point on, I just, I had to go to meetings, sometimes twice a day, because I had formed this habit of, you drink, you isolate, like, that's your life, right? Um, so I, I leaned into the program. Um, my, my sponsor family was like, please stop dating people. You're doing a terrible job, right? Um, so I actually went to a lot of meetings in Midtown where there's a lot of wonderful older gay men and I got in with them just fine. <laughs> Many of them were at our wedding. Um, and so then fast forward um, to late October of 2017, um, by this point in time, I'd, I'd gotten through a good many of my steps, the 12 steps of AA. And I'd been intentionally single. And then my sponsor was like, okay, I, I think you're in an okay place to, to date, you know. But I had I'd told God, like, if you want me to be single, I trust you with it. And that was a huge thing for me. And I really believed that it would be good if I was going to be single. But meanwhile, I'd be like, but please, God. A husband would be cool. So I was going to one of the meetings. I went to was at the Zone in Marietta on Friday nights with a lot of my friends, and that's when Patrick just like caught my eye, like a ginger. I'd never dated a ginger before, um, but there was just <laughs> there was just something about him, you know, and. It, I knew he was a mechanic at the time because he wore that cute outfit. I thought it was a cute outfit. Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of met playing ping pong, and I asked him if he could fix my car. He did. And then he's shy, you guys. I'm the talkative one in the relationship, okay? Um, and so I just kept asking him out, and he finally said yes. <laughs> um, but the coolest, the coolest part was, and you'll hear my husband's story in a second. There was just something so safe about him. For the first time in my life, because I got healthy, I was attracted to safety. Um, And I remember, this is such a cheesy part of our story, but I had this heart necklace on one of the first times that we like went on a date together and it was all tangled because I can be a messy person. And he was like, he took my necklace and he was like, let me fix your heart for you. What's the beautiful part is God had already fixed my heart. But that solidified to me that, like, this is a good one, you know. So we, we ended up dating for probably about a year and a half, two. I was starting to be like, okay, it's time for a ring, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost 30. I got sober when I was 28. Um, and it was, it was important. My dad did a great job at affirming for me, like, don't compare yourself to your friends. Your friends haven't had to go through what you've been through. Because in my head, we live in the South. My girlfriends got married when they were 22, started popping out kids at 23. And I was like, I'm behind. And my dad was like, you're right where you need to be. God has something. So his affirmations really, really carried me far. I, I will say, I forgot this part. So when I got sober, the time that it stuck on July 4th, right before that I had shared with my family what had happened um and that was so scary telling them what happened um my parents wrapped me in their arms you know um however my my grandma my dad's mom and that entire side of the family um they attempted to to pay me off to be silent um I have little cousins and so my biggest fear And one of the driving reasons that I told, other than my sobriety, I knew I couldn't stay sober, healthy, if I didn't share. Um, I I had to bring charges about because I didn't want my little cousins to go through what I've been through. And so that side of the family decided that they were going to write off everybody from my dad down. So that was really, that hurt, that hurt. Um, Because of the program, I was able to sentence my step-grandfather to treatment instead of prison because I knew that like people that are child molesters, they typically get beat up in prison. It doesn't go well for them. And child molesters, 90-something percent of them were victims themselves. So I really felt good about that decision. there were times, there have been times when I've missed that side of my family so much and my dad has missed them so much. And and we've learned that we've got to talk about it together. we got to grapple through those things together. Um, God has also brought Patrick and I through some really difficult trials with infertility. Um, we've had several miscarriages um, and we, we trusted God with it all along. Um, we really prayed hard IVF would work because... You know, it, adoption's hard if one of you has felonies, which I think is silly if they're drug-related and you've got a lot of clean time, but that's just me. Um, but God brought us through. And so what I've learned is the only way to get get through life and not go back to the drink, not go back to the old ways, not go back to bulimia, is to to be honest and to, to be honest with your family. Um, so I guess those are, the, those are the biggest things that I have to share with you guys today. Thanks for listening. Oh, well, I did forget. So, okay, here's how God's cool. Um, John mentioned that I'm a program director at a trauma and addiction recovery center. And after going through a type of hypnotherapy myself for my PTSD, because I had some bad flashbacks, y'all, like that just plagued my life. Um, that shifted and changed everything. And so now I get to walk young women through that and, and see their lives shift, because treating the trauma really does enable people to stay sober. So, yeah. Okay.
2: Hello everyone, I'm Patrick Johnson, I'm um, an addict alcoholic person in long-term recovery and what that means for me today is that I choose to abstain from consuming any mind or mood altering substance and have been doing so for about six years and four months since I first decided to commit my life to the recovery journey. So. My story kinda begins back in 1984 when I was born. My parents, um, my father was an alcoholic and my mother a social drinker. And um, as he was at the time, he was um, a certified arborist with a degree in arboriculture. He installed the lightning grounding system in the king and queen towers over, off of 285 and worked in the, um, handled the care of the Atlanta gardens, I want to say, so he was, he was a talented man when it came to trees, but his addiction to alcohol took its toll on not only him, but his professional career and his relationship with my mother. They eventually got divorced because of his regular drinking, arguing, and fighting. When I was about five years old, um, at this time, I start to develop symptoms for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, being a disruptive, unruly child in the classroom, and ultimately, you know, uh, I go into first grade where they then recommend to my mother that I pursue or she pursue uh, professional assistance. And um, at that point in time, I started, I was prescribed Ritalin. Uh, Let's see. So I like to think that that was kind of a catalyst for developing addiction, right? Where the Ritalin being a stimulant introduced me to living in an altered state of sobriety, right? Right? And helped to establish a pattern of living that way. Um, when I was about seven, I had become better in class because of the medication, but my father's situation deteriorated. He had to eventually move back in with his mother, and um, his drinking, his alcoholism, led him into a severe depression. He unfortunately uh, decided. To take his own life at that point in time, and I lived in disbelief for you know some some time. Um, fortunately, we were able to get into some counseling. Um, I have a younger brother also who has struggled with depressive um, issues throughout most of his life. The counseling helped us to get back to being functional and as children, you know, going to school and whatnot, but no longer having a father left um, a void, an emptiness, of um, something that a young boy, a young man definitely needs, you know, uh, and that void for me was filled at the time by basketball, um, I was going to Park Street Elementary, over off of Roswell. Not sure if y'all know of it, but after school we would go to the James T. Anderson Boys Club, where um, I met my coach, who was also Scottie Pippen's cousin. Uh, so it's pretty cool, you know. And um, yeah, being the tall person that I am, um, I found myself being the starting center and seeking to you know, achieve his approval and I did that and you know, it, was, it was good for some time until the transition into middle school uh, I ended up I was going to East Cobb Middle School and I did not make the final cut onto the East Cobb basketball team so now no longer having the positive male role model of my basketball coach in my life I start seeking, uh, you know, a new male role model of a sort because I no longer have my father and my mom. She's full-time working. And obviously, you know, a woman can't do that of a man. But that's just my opinion. So I went looking in all the wrong places, um, mostly being with the kids that skateboarded and BMXed, and we're in a similar family situation, being a broken home with no father present, just a couple of unruly older brothers. And in order to get their approval, I needed to start smoking marijuana and drinking on the weekends. And that continued for the most part through uh, into my high school career. At the age of 17, I was coming home from McDonald's and got into an automobile accident, and the attorney at the time suggested that I try to pursue pain management to get the biggest check I could get. Um, So I'm still continuing to do stimulants. At this point, it's now Adderall. And... Starting to pursue pain management, I get addicted to opiates as well. Um, needless to say, this has a terrible effect on my grades. While I'm still becoming or being a young hellion, you know, hanging out with all the wrong people, um, I became a super senior, tried to graduate, but just was too focused on all the wrong things. Um, unfortunately, I didn't end up graduating. I had to get my GED sometime afterwards. Uh, I know I'm skipping stuff, and I, you'll have to forgive me, but, <laughs> uh, okay, so I get my GED, and I decide that I want to learn how to work on cars to build race cars. And I figured the best thing for me to do is to go to welding school where I can learn how to manufacture and fabricate different pieces and modify vehicles and build true race car and whatnot. I've skipped ahead too far. While I was in pain management, I'm just doing terrible. (laughs) So while in pain management, after not graduating high school, they finally give me a drug test and I end up testing for positive for marijuana and none of the prescriptions that they've been writing because I've been consuming too many of them and selling them to my friends. They kicked me out of pain management and um, I decided to just focus on smoking weed and drinking occasionally because my friends are doing that. It's okay. I can do it. It's gonna be all right. Not having the understanding that I'm suffering from the same addiction that my father suffered from, it just continued to manifest worse and worse. I decided to go to welding school, like I stated, and this is a few years later. Uh, During this point in time, I decided to pick up pain management drug use again. you know, I probably should have written something down. <laughs> this am just, <laughs> just doing terrible. Okay. Yes, I should have. Altogether, uh, I've probably been arrested 12 to 15 times. Um, my first arrest was as a teenager um, with that same group of friends. I wanted to... Uh, take a friend out for a ride in my new pickup truck we ended up getting pulled over I was 19 I was arrested for possession of marijuana underage possession of alcohol and a tag light offense or something like that as soon as I got back out of the jail I was smoking marijuana again and this was pretty much the same story every time that I got arrested Regardless of the duration that I was in jail It varied from 24 hours to 4 weeks You know, 28 days Every time it didn't matter After finding myself addicted again During welding school To opiates Um The situation became that I couldn't afford to buy them anymore, so I used my medical records to get back into pain management. I met a friend who was willing to cover the expenses if I only gave him a portion. So that's how I got that ball rolling. Eventually, you know, the quantity that I was consuming wasn't enough. And the next best thing was much more affordable and that was heroin. I was uh, becoming an IV drug user at the time. Shortly beforehand, my little brother, who had gotten involved in a relationship with the older sister of our friend group, um, they fell out of love and decided to part ways. When that friend group When they parted ways, she filed for a protective order against him that extended to third parties. Our friend group had to essentially no longer be a group because it was me and my brother and three neutral individuals and three other brothers. Um, I started to look for more another friend group and I met some miners that were working in downtown Atlanta, and they just happened to be methamphetamine addicts. So I've picked up methamphetamines, and I'm now doing heroin, and I'm doing them all intravenously. Do uh, you guys remember? She, Jessica wanted me to specifically mention this thing. Remember Sonoma right? Oh, yeah. So I'm at home and uh, full withdrawal from heroin use. And a friend from the east side of 285 calls me at like 11 o'clock, and he's like, hey, let's go score some before this gets too out of hand. So he picks me up at like around noonish, and we head down to Six Flags Drive to meet up with the drug dealer. And um, we managed to get off the highway into a gas station, but then from there, it's probably like 4.30, 5 o'clock at this time. From there, I have to walk about a mile and a half, two miles down the road in full withdrawal, and I'm praying the whole time that I'll make it there without pooping my pants. <laughs> it was bad. Anyway, I do make it there, and I make it back. And, um, yeah, then we're on the way back and pushing cars through intersections and stuff. It's like two o'clock all in the morning by the time we get back and I I went through all that just because I needed a fix of heroin that's kind of the short version of the story but I just wanted to make sure I mentioned it anyway so I finally God lets me get caught for the things that I did not what I got caught for if that makes sense because at this time, my addiction is so bad. I'm unemployed, unemployable, because I have illicit drugs in my system 24 hours a day. I'll never be able to get a job anywhere. And if I did get a job, I couldn't show up to it because I was often sick and then withdraw. Um, to manage my symptoms, I was shoplifting from any store that I went into all day every day. Uh, I did a rough estimate and um, over the course of about four and a half years I shoplifted somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half million dollars worth of merchandise from Home Depot's, Walmart's, Target's, Kroger's, Publix, Walgreens, Rite Aid, anywhere you can think of. Um, Fortunately, as I was saying before, (laughs) God let me get caught for the things that I did, not the thing I was doing. And I had my first felony drug possession arrest. Um, At the time, I had become involved in a relationship with another addict and we actually ended up getting married uh, while under the influence. Um, We both get arrested and I decided the best thing for me to do is to sell my car, to get her out of jail after my mother bailed me out of jail. Um, I've had a very loving, some would say, codependent mother. Um, there's also another name for it. Enabling, yes, definitely. She was definitely enabling. Because um, she, like, wouldn't discipline me, you know? It was, you're a boy, you're a boy, you're going to have fun, you're going to do what you do. I'm, I love you, I to support you, I don't want to lose you but uh, I apologize for being all scattered about this (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh, my mother she bails me out, I sell my car to bail the drug addict wife out and let's see over the course of probably like within a week or so um, I get arrested for shoplifting at Walmart for the first time and also catching my second um, felony drug possession charge for Klonopin, which is kind of like Xanax, but it was not in a prescription bottle. Um, from then, I'm more careful about my behaviors leading up to uh, you know, the process, the judicial process, before we take um, our plea agreements. Uh, we had heard that drug court was a viable option And they were willing to accept us as a couple, but as I was overly concerned with my addiction, I didn't make my meeting in time, but we made sure that she made hers. And I think this was like a God thing at the time because the relationship was very unhealthy. Um, There were incidents of violence and whatnot stemming from distrust and um, not being high at the time probably because we weren't meant to be and it's obvious now she gets into drug court I pursue first offender probation a week after I began my first offender probation I get arrested for a third time for felony drug possession it was heroin and cocaine and before they realized that I was on probation, I was able to bond out again. And within five days, I get arrested for the fourth time for my fifth felony drug possession charge. And they knew at that point that I was on probation and violating with new offenses. Um, i like to think that that was God finally intervening in my life in a substantial enough way to give me the ability to recognize that what I was doing was wrong and not only what I was doing was wrong but what I was doing was going down the same path that my dad went down right and um, during my time in the Cobb County jail system you know, I was able to fortunately have medication assistance to come off and manage the symptoms of the withdrawals which helped me to eventually obtain clarity of mind to realize that the relationship that I wanted and needed the whole time was one with God, right? Like, he's the father that's always been there for me. Even though my father chose to take his life, God, my father, is always there. I just didn't look for him. I was able to realize that and developed a desire to have a better understanding of him and the relationship with him. And I pursued um, the discipleship program that they have in the Cobb County Jail. I completed it successfully and started to lead uh, prayer group meetings daily while in jail. And I found freedom while there. And it wasn't so much freedom from being confined within the walls, but freedom from my addiction, from the entrapments of my own mind and negative thinking. And I was able to, fortunately, through the influence of Joyce Meyer, um, recognize that I had terrible thought patterns that were uh, leading me to make bad decisions, right? I was able to also self-address that and start implementing changes, but incorporating like my daily prayer life, daily reflections and meditations helped so much more to make the changes to help me establish a foundation to build my recovery off of. Um, I, uh, then was trying to figure out what course of action we were going to take. Drug court decided that they weren't going to take me while I was in jail, and I ended up going to Coastal State Prison in Savannah for a 90-day program, which they call an intense reentry. I was able to carry the healthy habits that I established in jail in through prison and bring them out with me afterwards. And uh, I think it was October, late October
0: 2015,
2: something like that, or 16. 15, 15. Either way. Uh, so, I don't know if anybody in there has been the prison or not, but when you are there, before they let you for a while, you have to provide an address. The only place I had left to go was back home to my mom. And my mom, she's on disability from car accidents and some other things. But she had moved in a roommate in my absence who was uh, an addict alcoholic also. And she was continuing to use uh, prescription pain medicine on a regular basis. So I was kind of like, I guess... uh, there's a similar saying, out of the, exactly, but it, it, it was, I, I like to think it's more of uh, a furnace where it just <laughs> helped to, <laughs> right, forge me into a stronger person, you know, to have to live with people that were still making bad decisions while being conscious that I needed to maintain a better path. Um, for obvious reasons, you know fear of going back to prison was just not a great place um to be in at all, but also to you know figure out who I am as a person because every day from when I was little, initially being put on Ritalin, from that day through the December seventh two thousand and fifteen, I think it was. No. Well, December 7th uh, 2014 or 15 when my last arrest occurred every day was under the influence of one substance or another so I finally was coming to a place where I was capable of understanding who I am and um, who I want to be and that's obviously not today, someone who's addicted to a substance, who's dependent on Feeling hard to feel normal, right? Like, um, fortunately, I decided to keep with it and I called, I reached out to a friend that I had known from my active addiction days who had become also a person in long term recovery and he introduced me to the zone and that's where I chose to go every day after work, um. It was another friend that had introduced me to uh, a mechanic shop owner off of South Cobb, where I worked kind of like in the gutters as a mechanic, so to speak, for the first few years, and um, where I serviced Jessica's Honda Civic. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like the zone became my new home. Um, I was there every day after work, every every weekend, you know, if I wasn't at work and I wasn't at the zone, then I was at home asleep. (sighs) I picked out my white chip on November 5th and have fortunately not had to get another one since, as I've seen many people. I've had the epiphany that a life of service and helping um, people that i've known and people that I don't know that are struggling with addiction is something that's going to be fulfilling, and I've already started to you know get uh, I guess the gift of accomplishment of self worth and confidence from my journey so far, and, um, yeah, I'm not as good at talking as Jessica, <laughs> so. <I'm> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about,
3: um, you know, where you were living while you were in such heavy addiction, and the part that your mom played in enabling if, if she would have mm-hmm. been born
2: That is an excellent question. Um, I can't... It's My answer is purely speculative, right? Because I've never known a mother that was a heavy disciplinarian, right? It was um, always, you're in trouble, here's your spanking, or I'm taking away your something, and... We would just turn around and laugh at her. And, you know, get our whatever back very quickly. Um, So there weren't, like, significant consequences for our misbehaviors. And so in the depths of my addiction, I was actually living with her, not paying any bills, uh, not paying any rent, only... Just doing illegal activities. And at one point, um, I hate to say it, you know, but like I introduced my mother to heroin. I knew that she had been struggling with her injuries from uh, a work related incident and a car accident, and I exploited her to my benefit and uh, I mean I I wish she had had the ability to put me out you know Um, like I didn't I never knew the homeless bottom like some people have had that have rebounded from there and gone on to do great things in recovery have any thoughts about, like, your parents? Are you asking me a question? I am, Jessica. <coughs> do you, you want to come on up here? Maybe sure on? Yes, come on.
3: Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, you can just hold it, honey. You're yeah, doing so good. I'm so nervous. Do y'all have questions? I don't want to just, you know... I can talk forever. That is something. But I'm happy to answer any questions. I do. I have a question just about when you were struggling with suicidal thoughts and stuff, just how best to um, to support like
3: like on my end to support and love and um talk
1: about it with a with a loved one. Yeah. Um my dad was really the the parent that was most capable of being there for me during that time um and he was just there you know what I mean like he I know that if I had been actively suicidal and the the difference there is like if I had had access to a gun or some other means of completing right like I know my dad would have taken me to a psychiatric hospital so I think A recognizing making sure somebody's safe Um, but in terms of just wanting to die my dad just listened my dad just listened and he he loved me in it and he said look it's it's gonna be okay we're gonna get through this together what do we need to do Um, and that had to happen over and over again for a couple months but you know, with with sobriety, alcohol is such a powerful depressant. So when that wasn't being poured into my system every day, I finally was starting to believe more and was able to get back in touch with hope. Yeah.
0: Jessica, what are you and Patrick doing today for your continued recovery? I know you're in the recovery. Business, but are you doing anything as a couple or uh,
1: individually to work on that? <laughs> for sure. And I'm giggling because like some people say that they don't need meetings after they have a few years sober, and my response is always like, Well, I'm too crazy for that to be true. Like and what I mean by that is is the program really keeps me grounded. Like, life still continues to show up and so the the networks that we each have separate networks like we each have our people but we also have together networks um we don't really attend meetings together i think we've been to like
2: we definitely don't
1: three (laughs) (laughs) you know
2: (laughs) it's an individual program like um yeah
1: so and we do uh we do devotions together like we are both christians we pray together that's big for us um so it's important, and there, there have been times when we've looked at each other and been like, "You need a meeting." So, definitely, yes,
2: both directions. Both. How often do you go?
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So I really have started loving like seven a.m. meetings. I'm more of an early bird, and Patrick's a night owl. So you know, probably three times a week, two to three times a week. Um, that's for me.
2: A little bit less often.
1: He's a little less crazy, so.
2: (laughs) I would say average. I'm attending a meeting once a week,
1: Mm -hmm. at least.
2: I mean, between being stay-at-home dad and working on the weekends and
1: opening a sober living, sober living, you know. Yeah,
2: but we we definitely stay connected in the recovery community. Um,
1: They're a family.
2: What's the saying? Connection is the opposite of addiction. Yeah. Tell, tell
1: us about your
2: sober living. foundation I that you mentioned this client this week. We we have uh, received our first client this week. Um, so I started it back in July of last year and was just encountering like one obstacle or another. Um, whether it be uh, cities that aren't so friendly with the operation of sober living because of the negative stigma that has uh, unfortunately developed with uh, some of the ones that were operating in a less than reputable manner Uh, but we are um, I'm actively attending GAR or Georgia Association of Recovery (coughs) Residents meetings and uh, pursuing membership and approval by the organization, which is um, aiming to be the sanctioning body or establishing the standard for recovery residents in the state of Georgia, which is um, an affiliate of the National Association of Recovery Residences, or NAR.
1: He's put a lot of pride and passion into it, and one of the first times I met Patrick when we were so duly sober, he was like, I want to do this one day. Like, one day I want to have a sober living. So it's been really cool to see him, like, take the step. And he named it Acceptance.
2: Unfortunately, I kind of skipped over that in the story. <laughs> but uh, acceptance, has, acceptance has been, um, to me, like, one of the crucial components of... Um, like emotional progress, right? Mm-hmm. Like accepting that I'm in a situation, recognizing that I need to do a certain thing or a series of things in order to get out of it or
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, progress from it. You know, if mm-hmm. like just live in denial about it and nothing's happening and I'm just kind of dog paddling or starting to sink more.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jessica,
1: can you talk about your place where you work? Sure um, and I feel compelled to say this too just because you guys are, are parents um, my dad really came a long way went to 12 step meetings with me and I love my mom dearly, I don't hold any resentment at my mom today because she's done the best she can and sobriety is by the grace of God and it's just not not somewhere that she is yet but i will say that it was really hard early on because my mom has continued to drink two bottles a day and so if if you have a kid that's struggling with an alcohol addiction like i just encourage like don't drink in front of them i just felt like i had to say that um emerge is the coolest most incredible place um I've been a clinical director of a detox in the past, actually sure. during COVID, um, had the opportunity to work at Atlanta Mission for a few years, like really worked some cool places. But Emerge was opened by Rush Jolly, who's this incredible human that has been sober, I think 13 years, maybe more, maybe 15, I don't a long time. Um, and the, the light of God is just in him. Um, And then the other owner is one of my very best friends, Joe DeFabio, who's also a man in long-term recovery. They're the best. They don't even like when I call them bosses, but they are the owners. Um, And the whole objective of our program was to address the underlying facets that contribute to addiction and that um, increase the likelihood of relapse. So we are a trauma recovery program. We do a lot of... um, some of the clients call it hippy dippy stuff but they love it Um, a lot of breath work hypnotherapy rrt things of that nature so
2: what is rrt
1: rrt is what helped my ptsd symptoms completely dissipate so when you have been through rapid resolution therapy um When you have been through things like physiological or sexual abuse, like your brain stores those. And so RRT is a form of hypnotherapy that gets them unstuck. So grateful to say I got full training in that because I don't use stuff that doesn't work, if that makes sense. So, and we're in Alpharetta. In relief. So, like an inpatient? We are a PHP and IOP.
2: What's the difference?
1: PHP means you hang out with us six hours, five days a week. IOP, you hang out with us three hours, either five or three days a week. And we're just kicking off an alumni program. We opened in July, um, and we have a very strong alumni already. So it's been really cool. Men and women? Yes, Emerge is men and women.
0: Andrew, why do
2: you tell us about the structure of the Sober Living, what does that look like? So, uh, we are a three-phase program. Um, phase one is obviously the most intense, right? Where we require uh, seven hours, one hour daily of meeting attendance. Um, this can be meeting attendance or meeting with the sponsor to do step work to establish a healthy pattern of um, not only attending meetings but seeing other healthy individuals that are of a like mind, you know, wanting to pursue sobriety, uh, We do uh, twice or three times weekly random drug testing and have a curfew at 10 p.m. And um, this applies to, you know, obviously anybody coming in the uh, so second phase is two months later this is when they'll get their initial um, we'll call it a weekend pass you know, 24 hours outside of the sober living you know. uh, we reduce then to 6 hours of required meeting attendance either a 12 step meeting or with the sponsor and um, the drug testing stays the same frequency but we push the curfew back a little bit later to you know enable some more freedom should they choose to utilize it. Uh, finally, coming to the third and final phase, uh, which is the fifth and sixth month of the six month requirement. Um, we you know taper down just a little bit more, come down to five hours of required meeting attendance or working with a sponsor, and um, one to two drug tests per week randomly. Um, finally, uh, curfew of midnight, and should they need to stay any longer, they stay at that phase until they decide to leave, and this is to, you know, help establish um, healthy patterns, um, a healthy dependence on a sober network, um, you know, we require um, that uh, they do the things that work, you know.
1: And they get house meetings with Patrick at least once a week but he's really big on changing the way people think and I think that's a gift that, that God has given you so yes. excited to see how that manifests in sober living
2: uh, if you have to decide how to implement it right you're doing like.
1: great right now honey the house or apartments
2: this we're our initial location is a two bedroom apartment with double occupancy so this means two people per bedroom um, it's pretty spacious. There's enough room, you know, to live comfortably.
1: If we can find a house in our area we can afford, we'll keep you posted. <laughs> How do you
3: manage to know about
0: curfew? Do you have somebody staying on the
2: property with them in? Um, not at this moment in time, but we are. I we live like three miles from the property, and you know I am going to be a regular presence there. You know, they'll be seeing me at least three or four times a week. Additionally, we have uh, Wi-Fi cameras, too, inside the unit, monitoring the front door and the common area. So, that you know, we prevent any um, occurrence of suspicion regarding, like, he went in my room, you know, the kind of things that you could expect to have with roommates. Mm
3: -hmm. You know, they're required to work, and
0: have a car, and,
2: Yes, they're going to have a car. They're, I mean, if they're not working, you know, we, we don't want you to just lounging around at home all day. Uh, you need to be doing, like, some kind of programming at Emerge or another facility like that. Or volunteering, doing some form of um, step work or service-related work, mm-hmm. service work as we call it the idea is you know to keep you busy
3: mm-hmm.
1: so so God is a big part of both your your lives in your in your working with sober living or counseling does that come out as well I know it's a part of the program the tower, but... yeah I think that answer is different for for both of us i I actually yes it does God's love in my opinion is evident. And how we how we show up for people, um, at least that's that's my prayer. That's what I see in my husband. I'm a little more explicit with with my faith and spirituality. Um, I think Patrick does just a really good job at because when you encounter people that are atheists or agnostic, like Patrick does a really good job in not pulling the Jesus card. You know what I'm saying? Um, not that he doesn't well, show him. He just
2: Yeah, I mean, like, so what I perceive is that a lot of people struggle um, with the conceptualization of God as religion, right, as other people have constructed him, right? And I don't want to come across, like, the God of the Christian church is this 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 or this no it's um the god of my understanding as it states in the program is the same god it's just i've been able to accept and realize that my relationship with him isn't based on somebody else's um construction and a lot of people, what I've seen that struggle with the spirituality concept is that they've accepted somebody else's construction as the condemning God that wants to be angry and punish you and blah, 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 not knowing and understanding that God loves you so much. And if you merely pursue your relationship with him, he has untold blessings and bounty for all of his children you know
3: down that path and you so want to find the right program, the right, the right sober living, the, the right therapist, the right everything, and if you do give them those tools and they don't really take it and mm-hmm. run with it, do you think it's fair at a point to just say I'm going to mm-hmm. let them go mm-hmm. and pray them back? Is mm-hmm. that for you guys having been down that path? you
1: feel like if it was your child, mm. knowing what you know now, is that what you would do? Mm. That's a big question. That's a big question. In my mind, and I'm curious to hear what Patrick says, but, like, so as a as a trauma survivor, as a sexual abuse survivor, it was it was really important for me that, like, I had arms to run into. Like, my dad didn't know what had happened to me, so his presence was was affirming when I was finally able to be honest if that makes sense um but I think as an addiction I'm a master addiction counselor as well as an LPC and what I see with uh, with the absence of sexual trauma if you just have straight addiction those boundaries are essential like I didn't I didn't acknowledge that I had a problem drinking until my friends started to walk out of my life until they didn't want me to be around them anymore um my parents didn't really know how bad that got um, but it took people either k- kicking me out or not wanting me around to realize like something's gotta give
2: so like I would like to think that that would be the course of action that I would take is that I would let son fall on his own face I would not bail him out of jail
1: I don't think you would I
2: don't think you would no I mean jail saved my life you know just put it plain and simple jail and prison saved my life half of my friend group is dead from overdose and substance abuse Hmm. But there's a
0: country music song that says I found Jesus on the
2: jailhouse floor lyrics it's true for a lot of people
1: Yeah, I'm glad that this group exists because as a mom now I can't, I can't imagine how hard that must be so I'm glad that you guys have, have this place to come and find hope together
0: Anybody else got any questions?
3: Well, thank you all very much.